0: Episode 182 of the Stem Cell Podcast Stem Cells and Society with Dr. Christopher Scott. Hey everyone, we are Dalon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. We try to pick top stem cell researchers to interview on the podcast, but we want to know who you want to hear. If you know anyone that would make a great guest, send us your suggestions at info at stemcellpodcast.com. Today, we have Dr. Christopher Scott from Baylor College of Medicine. He's on the podcast to talk about his research on the ethical, legal, and social implications of emerging biotechnologies. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news coming right up.
1: But first, at the beginning of 2020, which, can you believe it, that was like, 10 months ago, not 10 years ago. Stem cell Technologies conducted a survey asking scientists to help highlight the needs and challenges in the human pluripotent stem cell field. You can read the survey results to learn more about the most interesting insights on topics such as reproducibility, quality control, and how to address them in your own research. So you can visit www.stemcell.com slash HPSC survey results to learn more. And speaking of stem cells and society, we're actually going to do something a little different with the first uh, segment here today. This is a unique episode. We're talking about stem cells and society and bioethics of stem cell biology and other technologies. But I would say when it comes to policy news, there's a huge piece of policy news that has recently emerged um, from here in California. And you've probably heard about it. If you're in the stem cell field, and in particular, if you're here in California like me, Prop 14, Proposition 14 has passed here in the state, in the Golden State. And what that means is that the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine is coming back. It's going to receive another... $5.5 billion of funding over the next 10 to 15 ish years or so. It was narrowly approved by just a few hundred thousand votes. It was, um, you know, a part of the very recent November election that we had here and nationally. It's narrowly approved uh, 51% to 49%, but that's all you need. So the people have decided, the people have spoken, and they are going to infuse researchers and clinical trials with billions of more research funding and trial funding to actually study some areas that don't even involve stem cells. I mean, this is going to be you know, stem cell-centric funding because that's what CIRM is all about. But a lot of this money is actually going to be pumped into studying neurodevelopmental disorders like Alzheimer's research, Parkinson's, um, And it's a, it's a huge boost for biomedical research here in the state. Proposition 71, which was passed back in 2004, um, you know, it put California on the map. For every stem, everything stem cell related, and part of the reason that Prop 71 was passed back in the day was because here in the U.S. there was a federal ban on embryonic stem cell research. So California took it upon themselves to be like, all right, we're gonna, we're gonna, if you're gonna ban embryonic stem cell research on the federal level, we're gonna take over here at the state level and make California the place to be for stem cell research, and it has been. I'm actually a beneficiary of CERM, You know, uh, my training was heavily funded by CERM. I would say I'm a stem cell biologist today because of the California suit for regenerative medicine. So, um, so I'm obviously very grateful here. And now that Prop 71, which is again passed in 2004, has ran out of money. You know, it ran out of money last year. Uh, probably, you know, we're very fortunate to have Prop 14 come in and fill the gap. So if this didn't pass, you know, CERM would go under. And uh, for obvious reasons, for the stem cell community here in California, it uh, we are very happy that it did pass. And we're actually going to be having a guest, a CIRM guest here on the podcast in a few weeks, Dr. Kelly Shepard, who is a, um, a senior level employee at CIRM, more focused on the science of stem cell biology and uh Better understanding why certain things need to be funded and why certain areas of stem cell research are priorities for CIRM. So we'll we'll get her perspective on things and in particular on the passage of Prop 14. So yeah, I mean that's just you know something I wanted to to drop here on the podcast before we dive into the the roundup papers. But it is a huge huge deal for those of us here in the U.S. and those of us here in the Golden State of California.
0: Yeah, Arun, I was very pleased uh, to hear about this because honestly, I, I feared the worst. I feared it would go the other way, and um, particularly because what you mentioned there—you know—was born out of this really hostile environment toward uh, embryonic stem cell research, and I thought that was the major impetus back then. I mean, I'm sure it was. Um, that got it through, and I thought, absent that and given the alternatives to embryonic stem cell research, that a lot of the populace there in California would, would vote a different way. But, you know, I have a couple explanations that may account for it, I mean, whether they're right or wrong. I mean, I'm guessing that, one... Uh, It's just, you know, you get in the habit of it, perhaps, or you see the the good returns, and maybe you think, well, there's nothing wrong with this, you know? Having this, even absent this hostile environment, let's keep it going. You know, I think that maybe was the mindset of a lot of the the voters there, seeing how maybe there were some positive returns, both to the academic, you know, prestige, also the retention of great minds, the recruitment, some returns in the economy, perhaps. But also, I wonder if it was the ability and, and willingness of the organization and the scientists there to kind of pivot, you know. Mm-hmm. Initially, there was a focus on, you know, whatever the focus was. I think we we talked to one of the administrators on the podcast and he, he was sharing with us how there was a, a bit of a pivot to focus on things that were more applied, you know, pe- pe- things that yeah. would have a return in the shorter and in, in shorter Time scales and maybe be more visible to the voting public, and now you can see even that they're they're pivoting again to have a focus on these neurodevelopmental uh, 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 research areas so I feel like uh, this is uh, another testament to California's just openness and willingness to be flexible in their approach, and I think it served them well
1: yeah, I think so too I think um, it was somewhat of a perfect storm. And to be completely honest with you, I think most of us here in California were just shocked. We were shocked to see it pass. We were not expecting it to see it pass, especially now during the COVID era, considering that there's so many other things that are happening in the world. You know, stem cell biology tends to take a back seat, right? And it it wasn't as popular as the initial prop 14 or sorry the initial prop 71 which i believe passed at you know 60% yes to 40% no and now it's about 51% yes but perhaps flying under the radar helped out honestly if you think about it and i was actually looking at the money there weren't really any negative attack ads against Prop 14 this time, whereas last time there were quite a few. Um, so perhaps flying under the radar hmm. worked out.
0: Yeah, well, one guy is going to benefit from that is Calvin Quo, who just had a big paper on lung organoids and COVID, but we're not going to talk about that. I can't talk about COVID anymore. Um, so we're going to talk about something else that's didn't come out of California. I'm going to start with something near and dear to my heart, which is a little convergence of, uh, the blood and the skin. You know, I love the blood and I have some skin. I have a lot of skin. So do we all. Um, so I'm going to tell this story about epidermal stem and progenitor cells. Okay. This is what, uh, gives rise to the stratified epithelium in embryonic development and epidermis, which is made up of the, you know, uh, the epidermis and the mucosa—they—they they, uh, make up barriers that are like that's your first line, right? Um, you have that the keratinocytes—that's that tight connected layer—and there's a lot of diseases that have their origins in the keratinocytes and other elements of the skin. So there's like carcinogenic exposure, of course—it's—it it hits the skin, right? You have UV lights, the obvious one, but also chemicals, um, diseases like HPV. They're all risk factors for squamous cell carcinoma, but uh, there's not really a, a good understanding of the kind of genetic or, or cellular uh, underpinnings that are that underlie the disposition, a predisposition, uh, to squamous cell carcinoma. Okay, specifically in the case of Fanconi anemia. All right, Fanconi anemia. Most people would recognize that as a disorder in in the blood and the hematological system. Uh, it's loss of function of. There's a lot of different genes that uh, give rise to Fanconi, Fanconi anemia because it's all genes that are involved in DNA interstrand cross-link repair. Uh, so these cells are really susceptible to DNA damage. Oftentimes, you'll see this results in hematopoietic stem progenitor cell death, so you get bone marrow failure. But also, you'll get you know progression to leukemia. You'll get these oncogenic transformations. Um, But what no one talks about is these patients are also very highly predisposed to early onset of aggressive squamous cell carcinoma. Okay, so above 10% of these patients in this study, which was by Suzanne Wells out of Cincinnati Children's Hospital, out of 105 Fanconi aminemia patients... 11.4% 11.4 reported, 11.4% reported a history of skin cancer, okay? And that stands out because these patients aren't typically known um, for diseases outside of the hematopoietic compartment. And also, there's not the same degree of, like, in the, in the hematopoietic system, you have the constant turnover, which can lead to exhaustion. Not so much the case in the epidermal stem cell compartment. All right, so this led uh, Suzanne and her group to explore the Fanconi anemia uh, epidermal specific pathologies, okay, because they hypothesize that they exist for two reasons. One is that when you do bone marrow transplant to treat uh, fan- Fanconi anemia related ble- uh, bone marrow failure, It doesn't mitigate the risk of squamous cell carcinoma. In fact, it increases it. And if you look at the Cancer Genome Atlas associations between certain gene mutations and uh, squamous cell skin cancer, it's like 60% of the fank genes are, are, are associated with skin cancer, but, but none of those, well, 1% of those are associated with leukemia. So there's a lot of reasons to think that there's this predisposition to uh, squamous cell carcinoma in the case of these fank patients. In order to explore that, what they did is they under They took uh, patient-specific, FANC patient-specific IPS cells, directed differentiation into these epidermal stem uh, progenitor cells, um, and then also then differentiated those uh, into epidermal organotypic rafts, okay? So there's these raft uh, tissue models that were like organoids of the skin. And what they found is that while the FANC uh, loss of functions didn't affect the growth or differentiation of those epidermal stem cells, they once they were engineered into the rafts, you had a lot of... They were all banged up. There was all this disruptions of tissue adhesion and, and increased proliferation of basal cells, uh, and then when you looked into the human patients, they had this human cohort of 105 patients. When you looked into them, they saw the similar ultrastructural uh, pathologies um, and, you know, other s- structural defects in the chromosomes and specific, or in uh, non-chromosomes, in desmosomes and hemidesmosomes. So they actually had it down to the organelles, the defects underlying the pathology there. So altogether, the data kind of pretty much once and for all shows that these FANC, Uh, individuals, they're prone to the skin blistering, uh, but it's because of the mechanical stress and DNA damage uh, related to the FANC anemia and ability for tissue repair. Uh, And now, having created this kind of raft model, they have a, a nice means of looking downstream and seeing what the mechanisms of this are, and of course, at the end of the day, trying to find effective therapies to prevent and/or reverse this susceptibility to squamous cell carcinoma, which ultimately leads, leads to death in many cases, you know, you wouldn't think it, but a lot of these FANC patients die from squamous cell carcinoma that could be avoided.
1: Yeah, a connection between blood and skin here. It's a another amazing paper coming out of Cincinnati Children's. They, if you haven't heard by now, their stem cell and organoid team over there is absolutely world class. So many incredible researchers there, like Takenori Takebe. They just hired Ming Gu on the vascular side of things, Suzanne Wells, James Wells. So they are the place to be for organoid biology. One thing uh, to consider here, I, I really like these rafts. It's a, another really cool tissue engineering approach to uh, to study this particular disease. One thing that they did mention was that a limitation of the RAF system is that you're only really studying keratinocyte biology. You're not uh, focusing on any other cell types that may be critical or contributing to the disease pathology, like the, the immune cells or the stromal cells. But uh, but that's a, that was a big plus for me. I really like that system.
0: Yes, it's impressive. And, I mean, of course, um, we're moving towards these, you know, Really heterogeneous collections of cells that are assembled into organoids. I feel like that's the present now. It's not even the future, but with something like uh, fank, I think that the, the Fanconi anemia. I think the really important insight here is to really uh, highlight and, and elucidate this cell intrinsic defect, because it really is a disease of, of the cell uh, and the DNA repair process, and, and just to uh, echo your praise of the people at Cincinnati Children's. I want to point you guys towards the episode we did with some of the trainees there. They invited me out to visit for one of their graduate research council days as part of the podcast. I gave a great talk. Well, I gave a talk. Um, <laughs> I don't know if it was great, but it was a lot of fun. I had a great time there, and we interviewed uh, the trainees. So check that out after you hear this. All right. I'm
1: sure it was a great talk, Daylon. Don't <laughs> sell yourself short. Moving on to actually another cell stem cell paper, a brief report Cell Surface Mechanics Gate Embryonic Stem Cell Differentiation. First author of this paper is Martin Bergert, and last author is Alba Diz Munoz. This is coming from the EMBL the European Molecular Biology Laboratory, which are actually spread out, I think, across different places in the EU. Um, but Dr. Des Munoz, I believe, is in Heidelberg, Germany. So we're talking about differentiation here, right? We like talking about differentiation either for studying basic cell biology or for you know translational purposes right you can make all sorts of stuff from embryonic stem cells but differentiation usually happens with shape transitions if you think about it a pluripotent stem cell looks different from a differentiated cell right and these shape transitions help enable the specialized function of a cell okay so like a cardiomyocyte my favorite cell is like a little brick shaped cell and it's brick shaped for a reason it helps for the contraction helps with the force generation and the stem cell itself the ancestral stem cell is different when it comes to shape but to change shapes cells have to change the mechanical properties of their surfaces but whether cell surface mechanics can actually control the process of differentiation hasn't been super well explored we have covered a few other papers here on the podcast that have talked about the the important role of the the cytoskeleton and you know cell contact with the the matrix in influencing differentiation. For example, we actually covered uh, I believe the Millman Labs paper recently. I forget where it came out, but they were able to show by modulating the the cell cytoskeleton and the cell contact with the with the the matrix, you can actually improve pancreatic beta cell differentiation and function they can make more insulin and this is a more of a pure basic science study but they are showing here that membrane mechanics can actually gate the exit from the naive pluripotent state of mouse embryonic stem cells naive pluripotency is a pretty hot topic these days right it's the it's this you know powerful state of pluripotency that a lot of us are striving to get towards because you can make perhaps more and better different types of cells from these naive state cells as opposed to primed, which is the alternative. So they can measure membrane tension during the early differentiation process uh, using a pretty cool uh, technique here. And they can find that the naive state cells actually can release their plasma membrane from the underlying actin cortex when actually transitioning to the primed state. And what they're able to do is uh, you can actually mechanically tether, so-called tether, the plasma membrane to the cortex by enhancing the activity of a protein called ezrin, or actually expressing a synthetic linker. And you can demonstrate that this, you know, preventing this detachment is actually forcing the stem cells to keep their naive state. So you're talking about maintaining naive pluripotency, as, a, as I mentioned, is a, something to strive for. And ultimately, they're able to show that a decrease in this membrane-to-cortex attachment is a, a cell-intrinsic mechanism that's really needed for the stem cells to exit pluripotency. So it's a it's a pretty straightforward, uh, relatively simple paper here. It's got two two main figures, but it's characterizing these cells as they transition from the naïved to the prime state, and it's really this uh, the integrity of this membrane attachment to the matrix that's driving the transition between the two states. So I'm a fan of this area, you know, mechanobiology. I think it's something that we really need to pay closer attention to when it comes to our cell culture. We grow our cells in artificial substrates, right? We use matrix, we use matrigel, we use gelatin, we use plates made of plastic, right? Which are not exactly the same thing as, you know, the real, what's happening in the real body. So these are important things to really think about. How is mechanobiology really influencing stem cell function? And I think um, it's it's a really quite a quite a hot topic these days.
0: Very hot topic, my guy. Very hot topic. Although I must say, it takes a lot of courage to present a paper on this show that doesn't have any organoids. There is no (laughs) single cell. I mean, what is going on? How dare you? Um, Sorry, it's good though because it's basic. It's conceptual advance, and for me. Uh, The conceptual advance here, you know, it was a conceptual advance in the the past, you know, these early days studies showing that shape really mattered, you know, I know Nina Bissell first showing that you had mammary gland, epithelial cells, and in monolayer was one thing, but you had to get them to form the shape of a duct, you had to get them in the right shape in order to make the casein, you know, so function Mm -hmm. is form. And uh later on, showing the differentiation of pluripotent stem cells or any kind of progenitors down different lineages was oftentimes dictated by you know whatever the the elasticity of the matrix or the shear or whatever the, these forces um and here the conceptual advance to me is I've, i i that all that made sense you know is it, it dictated where you were and it dictated you what you should be like, but here it's in in the cell mm-hmm. it's uh you know the shape you are, and it's something that it was shown scientifically. Then, as soon as they give you the proof, you're like, "Oh yeah," because like you said at the very beginning, your cells just look different. And some of the people who have the most amazing clinical expertise in the world, you know, Shukret Metalopov for one, a guy who is the only one who can do what he does. There's a guy in my center here who does ICSI. He kind of invented it. Who he could tell you there's like a hundred sperm in there and they're all bad, you know, but they're not bad visibly, but he could tell you, he has the intuition to tell you which is a sperm to shoot in there. So, you know, on an intuitive level, on an instinctual level, as a scientist, you know, what what you see oftentimes is what you get. And there's some scientific proof for that.
1: Science is complicated, yet simple and beautiful, right? It makes sense. It just makes sense that if Differentiation happens, it's influenced by, of course, these intrinsic variables, like what we're talking about here, and also a variety of extrinsic variables. And our job, and your job out there as trainees, as listeners of the podcast, is to figure out how all of these things work. And for those of us working in in vitro biology, how can you best mimic all of these variables and incorporate all of these variables into your pseudo artificial? in vitro culture.
0: Good luck. Good luck. Well, you know, sometimes in vitro is just not the path, and this is a story that speaks to that. Um, It's another blood story and the skin, the interface. I'm loving it today. Uh, It's about tissue resident memory T cells. There's a ton of immune cells out there. These are the TRMs, if you were keeping track. Uh, They're part of the adaptive immunity in human tissues, they protect, protect against reinfection with pathogens, but they're also oftentimes the basis of, of some auto-inflammatory diseases like psoriasis, for one. Um, and you know, the skin, because it's all over, it's, it's one of the biggest reservoirs of these TRMs. There are many organs, uh, but they're in the skin everywhere, of course, uh, and they control skin resident memory. Uh, and that's critical for regulating normal vigilance, but also for treating these chronic, chronic inflammatory conditions like I said, psoriasis. Uh, so there's been a lot of study of them. You look at them in the mouse organs, um, and you can show that there's these tissue-resin cells. But of course, like we're talking about mice, and my, it's an issue because mice, they don't live forever. Or they're their preferred model, though. So we don't really know about the real long-term biology of these cells. Um, Although it's suggested because we have decades-long immunity to these common pathogens, you would think that these T t uh, T cells, the TRMs, either they persist or they self-renew in human tissues for a long time. So in order to address this, because the mouse model was falling short, and of course you can't do it in vitro, uh, Jorg Stari. I don't know if that's how I pronounce his name. I'm going for it because he's from the Medical University of Vienna. So that's I think that's how they do it in Vienna, Jorg. Um, anyway, his group, they used allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation to ask the question, okay, this is innovation. You can't do it in a mouse, so let's do it in humans, but in a way that's totally ethical. Okay, we're going to talk about ethics on this show. Um, what they did is they looked at uh, these transplants because the host and donor-derived immune cell populations can be tracked separately. You know which is which, of course. Um, and furthermore, looking in these patients, you can get the secondary measures in, of the, the role of these TRMs in graft versus host disease. Okay? And that's really the clinical endpoint here that I think is really exciting, and we're going to come back around to that. Anyway, uh, what they found was that uh, effectively they did some single-cell seek, of course. Got to do it. If you're going to cover a story on the show, it has to have some high-tech. a rune. take a lesson. I'm just kidding. Um, but they did this in-depth analysis of the blood and skin samples from a large co- uh, cohort of patients before and after allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation showed that these T cells persist for more than 10 years, all right, 10 years um, whereas the ones in the peripheral blood, they're like very high turnover. And they kind of did all this single cell seek to show that there is a unique survival program. There are these unique markers so that we can kind of uh, prognostically or, or prospectively isolate them in future studies. So that's cool. Uh, and they showed also just, you know, meat and potatoes that these, these, there's clones of them. They expand over time. And, and the real thing the real thing that's amazing here is that they implicated a role for these cells in local inflammation, and not just the local inflammation, but in local inflammation that underlies uh, graft versus host disease. okay? And this is a big deal because the dogma persists that it's graft versus host disease, in many cases, most cases, right? Which means that it's a transplant of the hematopoietic cells that then populate the skin and start chewing th- stuff up, right? But the reality here suggests that it's the local, the residual uh, TRM cells um, that can release, from the host, that can release uh, inflammatory uh, molecules that then trigger a lot of inflammatory uh, processes that are related to GVHD. So it's a nice, I like experimenting in humans type of thing. I love that when it's done right. Um, And then an insight here, you know, just basic like the the tools now to study this in the future, and also the real, I think, big picture insight of that maybe we got to think uh, the semantics of, of, of graph versus host disease.
1: Dalon loves experimenting in humans when it's done right. <laughs> I think we'll have to talk to Chris Scott about that one, Dalon. But yeah, hey, look, I'm not an immunologist, okay? I'll preface everything I'm about to say by saying that. But I can still see the beauty of this study for a couple reasons. One, it shows the differences between human and mouse like we're using all these you know mouse model systems to study these these issues when it comes to immunology and these tissue resident memory t cells but there really is a value for doing the human studies right and the other thing that was really exciting to me was that the fact that these t cell clones can actually stay stable and functionally competent for 10 years that's amazing
0: yeah yeah 10 years is a long time. You know it's longer? I'll tell you, it's parenthood, buddy. Now you know, sucker. And that is human experimentation as far as I'm concerned. So now you're as unethical as I am, all right? Tell Keon about experimentation with his life. (laughs) All right, let me stop. So I'm going to give you guys a message from stem cells quickly before we get to our interview with Chris Scott, we can talk about whether or not we're experimenting in the right way. Uh, Do you study mesenchymal stromal cells, also known as MSCs? There are currently over 350 active clinical trials utilizing MSCs, but these cells have long been a source of confusion and exploitation. Yeah, we're going to talk about that with Dr. Scott. Leaders in the field are now calling for better methods for MSC identification and characterization to learn more, read about their latest commentaries and summaries of key MSC publications at www.stemcell.com slash mscupdates. All right, guys. Today, we have with us Dr. Christopher Scott, who is the Dalton Tomlin Professor of Medical Ethics and Health Policy at Baylor College of Medicine, Dr. Scott uses qualitative and quantitative approaches to study the ethical, legal, social, and policy implications of emerging biotechnologies and clinical medicine. Christopher, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you uh, for having me, Dalen and Aaron. Yeah, Chris. Well, we'll jump right into it. You're one of the stem cell fields' leading bioethicists, even though you've kind of branched out as of late. And I've brought it up a lot, actually. A big reason why I love stem cell biology is because of the great discussions that we can have about different technologies, right? There's so many cool technologies that have emerged over the last decade. And we've actually written a couple of articles together about genome editing of human embryos and also brain organoids recently. So we'll start off with a broad question. As a bioethicist, what stem cell related or unrelated technology excites you the most right now, since it gives you the most to think about and talk about as an ethicist?
2: Well, the, the thing that gets me up in the morning really is, is um, the advances in human genome editing. And it, and it has a strong Kind of stem cell connection, so it brings two technologies pretty close together. And for me, that's like kid in the candy store, you know. Um, the fact that we now have a couple of Nobelists um, to thank this year makes it all really all the, all the sweeter. Hmm. And human genome editing is one of those technologies from an ethics and policy point of view that is multidimensional. It, uh, it crosses uh, over uh, and through boundaries, uh, countries, uh, labs. Um, it's one of these so-called democratizing technologies, as uh, were some types of stem cells, where many, many, many people, use them, um, very widespread. And so when you get that kind of diffusion of, of technologies, like we saw with, with stem cells, you get some really interesting um, social and ethical phenomenons. Um, one of the things that, Aaron, you and I talked about a lot was the so-called phenomenon of, of stem cell tourism, you remember that, where um, patients who could not find a therapy for whatever reason because they were closed out of a clinical trial or because uh, it hadn't been approved by their government would would travel to another jurisdiction to get that therapy. And it might be in a place where regulations were really uh, permissive or non-existent. And we just had a, a really big meeting with uh, 35 of the world's leading genome editing people, many of them were um, very active in the stem cell debates of 10 years ago. And one of the questions we asked them in this meeting was, um, you know, what's on the near horizon that worries you the most? And these are stem cell scientists and lawyers and ethicists and social scientists, uh, religious leaders. and one of the responses that kind of rose to the top of all the discussions we had was this might be the stem cell tourism on steroids Hmm. um, that emerged in, you know, 2005 and is still going on today. And on steroids, we, we mean that this CRISPR technology is so widely spread. I mean, everybody is using it. And it doesn't take um, a 20-year a, a trained expert to, to familiarize themselves with CRISPR technology. A lot of people can do it. Mm-hmm. And so because it's so diverse, uh, diffuse sorry, and um, so many diverse people are, are using it, the experts that we talk to uh, think that we may have unregulated CRISPR clinics. Hanging out, where you could go engineer yourself, or perhaps in, in the most extreme case, perhaps engineer an embryo, hmm. um, and the resulting baby, like uh, He Jiankui did in um, in China a couple yeah. years ago.
0: Yeah, I want to jump in there because you know. It must be exciting, I'll say. It's exciting to be, as you said, it's like a kid in a candy store as these technologies converge. But it's also kind of harrowing, I bet, to be the one people look to, you know, to to address these kind of questions because you're supposed to have the final say. And specifically in your case, it's the pace of advance, I would imagine, that could, could make your head spin. You know, it was five years ago you and Arun wrote that piece on modification of the beta globin locus, right? And that, I mean, five years in science time is like an eye blink, right? And that was discarded triploid embryos with a success rate four correctly targeted out of 28, which is essentially like, yeah, it's feasible, but it doesn't really work that well. Yeah. And a few short years later, designer baby headline that's been floating around in people's imagination is a hard reality. Is it a challenge keeping up, not just with like the tech and the pace of the tech, but the implications of that tech? Do you, have, do you find that you're kind of like you know, on your heels when you, when you think and talk about these things a little bit? Absolutely. I'll tell you a story um,
2: of a colleague that uh, Arun and I have at Stanford University, Vittorio um, Sebastiano. Um, stem cell biologist, also a CRISPR scientist. So, you know, there are these hints that come on to the horizon that something's going to happen. And one of those hints was the paper that Arun and I talked about, those triploid embryos, but they were hints before then, right? So in 2014, you guys may remember this cover article of Cell, and on the cover was this adorable pair of twin monkeys. Mm. Yeah. What, were they, cynomolgus sy- right. monkeys? Right. Yeah, I think so. And that cover article was a group from China who had successfully engineered, using CRISPR, a couple of primates. And scientists, you guys know, will tell you something about the species barrier as kind of that last leap before you get into human applications. And that was the, that leap from mammals to primates, that paper. Hmm. And I was sitting in my office. I don't remember what I was doing, looking out the window probably, but Vittorio um, came in, and he slapped that cell paper down on my desk and said, this is going to happen in humans, and it's going to happen in China. He said that in 2014, Hmm. so fully five years before—or four—almost five years before we heard of the controversy in China. So the question that policy scholars and ethicists ask with this is, we saw it coming, or we saw hints of it coming. Why didn't—why couldn't something have been done to prevent or discourage or whatever? Um, this source of behavior. Now, the rejoinder to that is, you're never going to kind of stop everybody or the the lone rogue actor from from doing this. But my counter argument is that that you could put some things in place that would discourage something like that from happening, or at least give that individual He Jiankui some some knowledge that you know if I go down this road, it's going to be really bad for me. I might go to jail mm-hmm. or I might never practice uh, biophysics again. He's a biophysicist. Hmm. So th- that actually happens to be the, the subject of an NIH grant that we were just awarded, um, and we're kind of just finishing our first, first aim, something called anticipatory governance. How do you look far enough down the road to identify those things that are plausible, not Crazy, but just plausible. And then, how do you prepare yourself for the eventuality that those sorts of things may happen, knowing full well that many of them won't? Mm. And with those, with all that kind of, um, uh, you know, that armamentarium of, of things that could happen, you can actually start to do governing, responsible governing, before it happens, and be
1: ready when something like that comes out of the gate so yeah it's a question. It's about the regulation right so that kind of what it comes down to and I, it's funny that you mentioned vittorio you know coming into your office and and throwing that paper down on your desk in 2014 and you know here we are five to six years later and he was right and we were right and it it that's exactly what happened you know human uh edited human embryos and CRISPR human children were born in, in China, right? And this is something that happened within the last few years. And at least in my opinion, I and maybe it's because we're living in this crazy current reality of 2020. I feel like it's faded to the background a little bit. And that's a little mind-blowing to me because I think this is like a species altering event that happened within the last two to three years. Should we be we should be paying more attention to it, right? But what you, you talked about the regulation, what can we do like as a society so that we can better understand some of this technology that's emerging and the importance of regulating it yeah. and then what, what can we do as a government
2: well um, I'll, I'll just say it's not always about just regulation. It, you know we tend to kind of think that there's going to be a law and then if, if a law happens or if a guideline happens or if we you know have some you know regulations that uh, this is going to go away or, or or be helped in some way well, I think it's bigger than that. I think it's also about behavior it's about values it's about you know who who ought to be um, making these decisions um, how we engage other individuals besides just scientists and ethicists in these questions about uh, how we govern these technologies. S- so, to the to the question about um, how we would do these sorts of things, w- one thing I think that can help is that we deliberate about this stuff early and often. So you can't just do it once and then walk away and think, oh, we've had our discussion. And that's a model that that uh, science policy has had for decades. You know, National Academies of, of Science, they, they convene their big boards of, of, of experts. They take six months to get everybody together and then they meet for two days and then they issue these monumental reports, and and, uh, some of them are very good. But that is a really slow process, right? And those individuals that are in, that populate those those groups, um, I know many of them, and uh, I've been to National Academies meetings. They're the usual suspects, right? So you get this kind of monoculture of experts talking about something that affects everybody. And my view, and I think the increasing views of of many social scientists and ethicists are that this needs to be more deliberative, it needs to be more democratic, and it, it needs to include the concerns and values of individuals who stand to use and perhaps benefit from these. And that's an easy statement to make and really, really, really hard to do. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, that that's the challenge, right? The, the, there's all these bodies that you can convene and there's there's regulations that you can encode and, and, and you have oversight and you can have whatever punitive measures. But at the end of the day, it's the people, right? It's the people doing the work that are you know the problem and the solution. I, I remember the Huang Wu uh cloning fiasco that dominated the science headlines a couple decades ago. And then there's been a, a series of these heartbreaking frauds along the way, like for example the STAP controversy and subsequent suicide by yeah. an icon, you know, a great scientist who yeah. killed himself. Uh, because of this controversy, Yoshiki Sasai. Um, and many many of these these debacles seem to have begun uh, with, you know, breakdowns in your garden variety research ethics. And I think a part of that is because the stakes are so high, it's a really competitive environment, and the upside is momentous, right? So you think that the ethical fabric, you know, if you had to compare the ethics of any, any researcher... Uh, To another, do you think that like the ethical fabric is strained on an individual or maybe even a collective level? You know, here right now in the midst of this pandemic, we're all we need the vaccine to work, right? Do you think there's a strain on our individual or collective ethics when the upside is so necessary or momentous? Like, in other words, do you think that there's more research misconduct in these high visibility ventures?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I don't know. I think I think when you have a high high reward situation uh, like the Wang scandal um, and have an individual that is suitably motivated to cheat to get to that, whatever it is, Um, international fame, certainly for stem cells. Uh, I think for He jean it was the same kind of sort of thing. He wanted to be the first. That's how he talked about it. Uh, That is a crucible for an event like the ones we've talked about. Whether that makes collectively scientists kind of more at risk about this, I, I don't know. I mean, it's a great research study to actually ask that, that question. Um, I, you know, I'm an optimist, mostly, uh, even though I'm in ethics. <laughs> 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 and, and uh, you know, most, most scientists are really, really good people. I'm a former scientist, I'm a former bench researcher, and um, some of the most fabulous, thoughtful, individuals i've ever met are are in the sciences hmm. um bench sciences so so i think everybody wants to do the right thing david baltimore said an interesting thing at the hong kong summit where he jiang kui announced his results and he, he i think it was when he wound up the meeting he said this this has been i'm paraphrasing this has been a failure of the scientific um, community to police itself or something like that. Mm. So he was like turning around looking right at the audience and saying it's the scientists are are responsible for this. Not anybody else. It's our house. We have to do something about this. So there's some, you know, there's a self own and a collective own with a statement, uh, like that. But as I've learned from this project, um, with the with the NIH, you know some scientists don't want to they don't, want, don't want to go there. They said that's that's your job, Chris. Hmm. You know it's your job to tell me what's right and wrong, what to do. And it's like, oh great, okay. Um, others say, uh, for example, um, an editor of of a very good journal told me, absolutely, we do not want scientists. To govern themselves, they're horrible at it. Hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, you can have them weigh in because they know the technology and the rest, but don't have them govern them. You know, don't have them police themselves because they can't do it.
0: So, yeah, I mean, I can attest to that myself. I'm a bit guilty. With my, uh, you know, I cook protocols and whatnot. I can always come up with a good reason why the work is essential and the, the pain and suffering of the animal is minimized to the absolute, yeah. you know, minimum. But yeah, like at the end of the day, I shouldn't be making that call, right? Because I want to do that experiment.
1: I I think a lot of it has to come down to the training, right? I think you have to be able to emphasize during the pr- training process as flawed as it is during grad school, you have to emphasize that this stuff is important. And especially if we're working in a field as cutting edge as pluripotent stem cells or genome editing, we have to teach the kids. We have to teach the students that you need to think about this. It's again, it's part of the reason I love this field is that we were able to have these discussions, but they have real world impacts as we're seeing right now, right? And so, speaking of like high visibility, high reward science, IPSC has really turned the stem cell field upside down, right? About, I guess it's been about 15 years. And for good reason. You can turn pretty much anything into anything else. You can pretty much turn any somatic cell into a pluripotent stem cell. So game-changing, Nobel Prizes got awarded. But there's actually one unique application of IPSCs that I don't think has gotten too much attention as of late. And perhaps that's because of the difficulty of the approach. And that's actually the production of gametes sperm and egg from iPSCs. I actually remember writing a paper on this topic when I was in your ethics class, and it was really cool to think about. And Dalen's out there in the Cornell Center for Reproductive Medicine, so I thought he'd get a kick out of the question as well. And so what would it mean? What would it mean to be able to generate functional human gametes from a person's own skin or blood, like derived iPSCs, and how it might it end up changing, I don't know, our species as a whole?
2: Well... That's you. You've hit on two really interesting things, um, and you're exactly right. The generation of, of gametes is is one of those um, corner areas of both science and ethics. That there's been some discussion about it, but um, not a lot. Not a lot written. I think it's fascinating. You know, um, iPSCs, thanks to Shinya Yamanaka, have Revolutionized, revolutionized the way that we, we think about fate, cell fate, and and uh, and how we organize tissues. And the fact that you could drive a cell backwards and then forwards into a gamete, I think, is just a stunning sort of thing to to con- uh, to contemplate. Um, Liz talk about it from the developmental point of view, right? So many diseases of early development that could be studied through this sort of mechanism. Um, so don't even think about kind of the end product where you you could actually maybe generate a, a baby using the kind of twin pathways of gamete production, but just understanding failures of early human development mm-hmm. in, in IVF I mean, dealing for sure hmm. would be super important sorts of things to to uh, to investigate. Um, but when you have that sort of power, you have a similar sort of thing that you have with, um, with the, you know human genome engineering, in my view, and that's you can you know you can you can twiddle with that. Process any number of ways, changing genes, um, putting in genes, cutting out genes, and so you're you're doing kind of a high level heritable, and that's kind of the golden word, gene engineering with with gametes. Hmm. And these sorts of things will be with the end product, with whether it's um, you, know, a, you know a baby or that baby when he or she grows up and the progeny of that baby forever. So um, that's a real, I think w- one of the things that, that ethics takes a deep breath about right. are the heritable parts of these technologies that, that we're, we're uh,
0: looking at. Yeah, right, uh, Arun uh, alluded to it earlier, it's like a new species. Um, so yes, on that point, regarding the IVF, you know, we had, uh, Katsuhiko, uh, Katsuhiko Hayashi at our center, who is famously the author, lead author on a bunch of the Mitunori Saitu work, uh, generating gametes. And then he started his own lab and he, he, he was at our center right after he had made iPS, human iPS cells into oocytes, uh, using like mouse fetal gonads. It was amazing. And for everyone in the group there, which was really clinicians, they were like, "Okay, so what's next? Like, when? When are we going to see the first, you know, because, you know, clinicians, I mean, (laughs) uh, I wish I were a clinician sometimes. They got all the money. But um, anyway, I digress. It was amazing. And uh, needless to say, the implications, as you alluded to, mind bending, you know, we talked about in the meeting about the idea of getting an XY genotype Uh, background, but you could create eggs from that background because it's the, you know, humoral factors that would direct the formation of the gametes. The idea there being that like two gay men could share biological offspring, one contributing the sperm and one contributing skin that becomes egg. It's like truly mind bending if, you know, the implications though are huge, uh, of course. But the real thing there that blew my mind was that Katsuhiko he told me that there was no funding for his work, and I'm paraphrasing him here, but he said the bottom line was that the, the, those opposed generally to the idea for good reason, because of heritable germline manipulation, they found the idea repellent, and I can understand that. But the other thing that was more surprising to me, he said that in his society, in Japan, in general, uh, the, the, the discussion of reproductive challenges was not discussed openly. Uh, and there's like you know there's a there's a real kind of a repressive atmosphere surrounding IVF or assisted reproduction and thus research uh, funding toward that end. And he's doing fine just now. I just saw his group was recommended for two and a half million from Open Philanthropy. But that kind of tells a tells a story. He had to go in one of these more private philanthropic uh, apparatus. And the question here I'm talking about is like I was surprised because that culture versus in the US I don't think it would be I mean I know it's not we're very open about IVF and assisted reproduction here do you do you find that the ethics vary from Culture to culture like you're having the same kind of discussion about the same thing But the nature of the discussion is very different depending on where you're having that discussion How do you reconcile that with this whole idea of the global scientific community? I mean we have to reach consensus But we have really disparate views when it comes to our culture. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah That's a that's a great question. You know in ethics we call this the kind of the normative view
2: What's the norm? for where you are, and our norms are different than Japan's, uh, which are different than China's, which are different than Islamic countries, which are different than than, uh, Catholic countries. And and as research becomes more global and interconnected and more democratic, um, you are faced with this thicket of problems that f- face the scientists who are trying to work together across these kind of gradients of, of uh, ethics and regulation um, and for the patients who might eventually use them. So just like with uh, COVID-19, you, you know, Americans are going to get an American vaccine, um, looks like. And with stem cell therapies, um, you will find, and we did find, that the benefits of some of those therapies were um, derived by the, the, the people in the jurisdictions where they were invented. And in fact, some of the research that I did early on with stem cell lines showed that the lines where they were derived, they they tended to stay put there. Hmm. So there was a, a strong kind of geographic anchor for certain stem cell lines to to stay in certain countries, um, and that can be a good thing and a bad thing. Um, but um, for just plain things like collaboration, uh, you know, there were times during the stem cell debates where researchers weren't sure whether they were liable for criminal charges by collaborating with someone in another country where uh, embryonic stem cell research was banned. Wow it wasn't clear by the law. sometimes the law was silent, and some, sometimes there was you know stuff that a able uh, lawyer or a scholar in law could say, "Yeah, you know, I wouldn't do that if I were you." Mm. Just because some attorney general somewhere might get, you know, a a B in his or her bonnet and
0: say, here's the law. My gosh, they're going to, they're going to lock up George Daly any day now. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck.
1: Oh man. So science is definitely worldwide, right? As we've talked about Chris and I want to come back to your optimism for a second here. You've, Said that scientists in general are good people trying to do good things, right? And unfortunately, it seems like we have to discuss science with the bioethicists when there's the potential for something bad to happen with a new technology or or a new discovery, like when there's the potential to misuse a new technology. But as an ethicist, you have to appreciate the scientists who have discussions with you throughout. The development process of a technology. So can you think of some examples where that was a situation and the scientists got it right and they were really working with the ethicists from the start when it came to actually these potentially groundbreaking or controversial new technologies?
2: Yeah, a, a good stem cell uh, case jumps to mind. And this is someone that you guys both know, Irv, Irv Weissman. So mm-hmm. Irv was contemplating... An experiment that would put um, human, let's see, I, I believe they, these were oligodendrocytes that were derived from embryo- human embryonic stem cells into a mouse fetus. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Right, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think he even was was contemplating um, an earlier developmental stage, not an embryo, but. Uh, something kind of between, and before he he did the experiment he he knew the cultural and perhaps religious sensitivities around an experiment like this because he was in essence creating a chimera human animal chimera, and he was using perhaps. Uh, fra- the, uh, the most ethically fraught cell <laughs> other than uh, gametes in the body, uh, you know, a neuron, right? Okay. Brains, consciousness, hmm. personhood, all the, all the stuff that, that, uh, that kind of gives us pause, makes creeps us out maybe a little bit. And so before he did the experiment, he came to a group at, at Stanford uh, that sits virtually – um, in the medical center, it's called the Bentside Consulting or uh, yeah, Bentside Ethics Consulting Group. And I was a member of that. Uh, a couple of colleagues of mine, uh, a rather uh, famous and good friend, uh, Hank Greeley, um, is on that group. And Irv, I, I think the story goes, Irv went to Hank and said, since they're neighbors. And they were talking over the fence, and he said, could could you put a group of people together to think about this from the ethics, law, and social vantage point, this experiment before I do it? And he explained the experiment, and I think shared a protocol with Hank. And Hank took it and formed a big group of, of people at Stanford and over the course of a few weeks, they kind of deliberated on it. They talked about, um, the, as you say, Aaron, some of the the more worrisome parts of this, you know, impeding some sort of human, perhaps, consciousness into um, a mouse and how you would um, measure that. How would you know, right? A famous veterinarian, told me once that uh, she had looked into the BDIs of millions and millions of mice and she has no idea what they're thinking <laughs> even in the best of circumstances. <laughs> um, and they thought long and hard about it, and these are all in a series of great papers, by the way, um, that you can you can read about their process. And long well, story short, They did not think that the way that the experiment was designed would have given that mouse um, human consciousness for a a number of of reasons. And those reasons were grounded pretty strongly in developmental biology. Um, You know, whisker barrel genes are going to drive that neuron to a whisker barrel, not to, you know— uh, an appreciation of Mozart <laughs> um, and the architecture of the, the mouse that developmental program was going to be so strong that it would overwhelm whatever millions of cells that Earth would would choose to put into the brain of that developing fetus. Mm. And so they, they gave him a green light mm. and the, the paper that Hank wrote afterwards, um, the title of it is Hi, I'm Mickey, and it's basically a, um, a reflection of what an ethicist, in this case a lawyer, Hank, goes through when they're picking apart something like this uh, and asking questions about uh, whether the the uh, experiment should proceed and by the way the rationale for the experiment was really good right I mean if you could you could make mouse models of human brain disease mm-hmm. that are really robust you know Parkinson's patients make lousy research subjects <laughs> there there uh, that's unethical right right Go experimenting on demented patients but if you could, have a real robust animal model of the human dementia be a cool thing
0: yes yes i mean I, I i've done a little bit of a chimera work myself in my in my uh, doctoral work and i remember those conversations and i want to preface this by saying that mm-hmm. i recognize that the great hubris of all scientists maybe but myself for certain is like, like the unknown, un- not recognizing the unknown unknowns, thinking you have it figured out. This isn't a risk, you know, when you don't really know. So I, I want to preface it with that. But this, what I'm saying is that I, a lot of those conversations I left with kind of like a bit of an eye roll because of the kind of, you know, the, the ideas that were being batted around, like, oh, this the personhood and all that stuff. And I recognize that it's not my job to, to address that. You know, I'm just going to ask for permission. You need to get some qualified people to give me the green light or not. But still, the cynical part of me is walking away like, oh, please. Um, so, you know, I'll say that. Um, but, you know, what I'm getting at there is that, for for me at least— There's these kind of things that are kind of like outside possibilities that are kind of like theoretical conversations. Like, oh, what if you put the stem cell in and the brain, but it migrated to the gonad and became uh, sperm and another animal had an egg and then the two mice had they got in the same cage. I mean, it's like one thing after that and the other. And you're like, oh, please. But then there's the other side where it's like, no way. That's a clear breach of ethics. And then there's like in the middle, in the gray area. So just for my curiosity and that of our listeners, as someone who's kind of seen it all, what are like the hard, like what's at least one hard boundary in the ethical conduct of science and application of discovery, whatever you want to call it? What's a hard boundary for you? And what, uh, the converse, what are some of like the gray areas that you agonize over when you're throwing them back with your colleagues, like I mean, I just really don't know. Is this really ethical? Uh, could you give yeah, me a yeah. couple examples of those? Yeah, well,
2: ethics is is everything in that gray category. That's why I like it so much. It's this is not um, a, a place where there are a lot of bright, bright lines, uh, and I've been on the ethics side of science for going on 20 years or so. And I love it so much because you do have these kind of competing things that you're trying to make a decision about. And sometimes there are no good answers. And in fact, the class that that Aaron took with me, those were cases, as I recall, where I purposely selected them because there's no answer. Hmm. You have to kind of come up with your own rationale and you can argue it really well from, from both sides. But for a, for a bright line, I, I guess I would say, you know, Hey, John Kui did a bad thing. I mean, this is a bad thing. Hmm. You, you don't go making babies when you don't have the risks sorted out. Um, and he, he, it was a basketful of misdeeds. I mean, the the books are ethics books are going to be written about this forever. He forged a signature on an ethics review. He the informed consent lied about what the experiment was. He called it a vaccination. Hmm. So, you know, the the germline editing things for me is a hard stop. Not. A permanent hard stock necessarily, but now, right now, that's a no-go zone. Hmm. Um, stem cells—I have to think about that. Um, I think I think when the risks haven't been properly e- evaluated, especially with embryonic stem cells. Um, I think there are probably some human experiments that simply shouldn't take place. Same sort of kind of rationale. Um, You don't want to be putting a potentially cancerous cell in an unregulated environment Hmm. and creating a tumor someplace. Um, and, And an interesting kind of twist, I think that's how iPSC's kind of gained the traction. Right. You know, Yamanaka... I think at one point said that it's because this embryonic stem cell environment is so morally fraught for him and for society Mm. that he wanted to pursue a different way.
1: Mm. Right. Yeah, but I mean, I I think something we talked about earlier, there's no – uh, certainly, I think there are certain hard lines that it's that we don't want to cross. But because we are an international community now, right? There are cultural differences between where those lines should be drawn. Um, so I think that's it, it's hard to get a consensus. Is what I'm saying. It's very difficult to get a consensus across the field. But we're trying, and you're trying, and we're very glad that you are trying because. You know, it's uh, these are important questions that we should have. And it's why it's so exciting to be involved in this field as a trainee and as a, a veteran scientist. So, well, Chris, I, I really appreciate uh, that comment um, uh, a lot. It's I think it's
2: by talking to scientists where I kind of gain a lot of my um, ethical frameworks. Right. Right. You can. You can sit off to the side and be a philosopher and Think about all of this kind of in the abstract, but it doesn't do you much good I think when it comes
1: down to kind of making real-world decisions or giving advice Right, it comes down comes down to the science and what happens in the science. So Chris Thank you so much for for joining us here today. It's uh, It's been a pleasure to catch up with an old mentor and an old friend of mine from from my grad school days. And it's, um, you're the first person I go to whenever I have a question or something that I'm excited about when it comes to a new technology that's either in the stem cell field or outside of it. So I, uh, I'm really happy that you're able to join us here today.
2: Thank you very much, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Uh, and Galen, nice talking to you too.
0: Likewise. All right, you guys, that brings us to the end of this show, a little something different today. I love talking to uh, someone about ethics, though, you know, an expert on ethics, because the conversation could go on forever. It went on a bit long, but I think it was a lot of fun. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at StemCellPodcast or by email at info at with feedback or to suggest guests. You guys get out there and do your work, but keep it ethical, please. And tune in in a couple weeks for our next episode. Thanks for listening.